The Abbasid Caliphate was the largest and arguably the greatest of Eurasia's early medieval empires. Dwarfing the petty principalities and kingdoms of Western Europe, not just in size and military capabilities, but in its cultural and scientific achievements. This is a standalone documentary covering the first hundred years of this mighty empire. If you'd like to know more about the origins of this dynasty, you can check out this video I made earlier on the revolution which got the Abbasids into power. This is a full-length, hour-long documentary, so please allow a moment for me to thank the sponsor for this video, Raid Shadow Legends. Reminiscent of classic RPG titles from the 90s and noughties, but with pristine modern graphics, Raid Shadow Legends can only really be compared with the biggest PC and console titles out at the moment. And the best part, it's completely free to play. Forget everything you think you know about mobile games, this one is about to change everything. Just look at this roadmap that they've published for the future. Raid not only has an amazing storyline, awesome 3D graphics, giant boss fights, PvP battles, and hundreds of champions to collect and customize, but its online community is growing incredibly quickly, with massive plans for updates over the next six-month period. Almost 10 million players worldwide have already downloaded the game in just three months, and with more than 200,000 reviews on the Play Store, Raid has almost a perfect score. There are so many levels to this game, combating against other live players, progressing through the deep storyline, and one of the best parts is collecting characters. Just look at the detail on those champions. So what are you waiting for? Click on the link in the description below and you'll gain 50,000 silver and a free epic champion to start your journey. When the Abbasid Caliph Al-Mustasim, spiritual head of the entire Islamic world, gazed out from the walls of Baghdad in the spring of 1257. Luxurious bathhouses, overflowing bazaars, and holy sites for all the Abrahamic religions arrayed before him. He could have been forgiven for assuming that the earthly and eternal power of his house would last forever. For he was the 37th Caliph of his dynasty, the spiritual successor to the Prophet Muhammad, and for tens of millions of Muslims from the Atlantic to the Pacific Ocean, God's representative on Earth. There had been hard times for his dynasty in the past. Dark days many assumed they would never recover from. Yet, nevertheless, against all the odds, they'd always come back from the brink. Such was the status that the Caliphal title held. Now, in the mid-13th century, as the hooves of steppe warriors came thundering towards the great city, just as they had done so many times before, surely this time was no different. How wrong he was. Unfortunately for Al-Mustasim, and the entire world he represented, everything was about to come crashing down plunging Islam into the darkest period it had ever yet experienced. A generation earlier, a terrifying flood of armoured horse nomads had 
come spilling out of the steppes of Inner Asia to enter the Islamic world on the shores of the Caspian Sea. The glittering Silk Road cities of Merv, Bukhara and Samarkand, metropolises populated by hundreds of thousands of people, many of them themselves descended from Central Asian pastoralists, were all flattened under the weight of the steppe riders' advance. For these riders were led by the greatest warlord to ever arise on the Eurasian plains. This was the horde of Genghis Khan, and he led the Mongols to war. But that had been in the past. By 1257, Genghis was long dead, and many observers assumed that like similar emperors before him, in his absence, his state would quickly fall apart. How wrong they were. In the 1250s, Genghis's grandson, Hulagu Khan, had come crashing back into the Islamic world, annihilating the Hashashin of Iran and establishing his own state there, known in time as the Ilkhanate. And now, he was coming for Baghdad. In classic Mongol negotiating style, Hulagu acted like the Caliph should already have been his vassal, chastising him for not coming to his aid during the campaign in Iran. Of course, Al-Mustasim responded in kind. He would never cede the city founded by his ancestors to a barbarian, adding that if Hulagu continued on his path, Muslims from the shores of the Atlantic to the oceans of Asia would rise up to save him. Hulagu accepted the challenge. Summoning the full military might of his recently subjugated vassal states of Georgia and Armenia, Chinese siege experts drafted from the far side of the world, and a whole plethora of Turkic tribes, perhaps a hundred thousand fighting men, all in all, they went to war. Riding hard and fast towards the center of the Islamic world, the Mongol war machine easily traversed over the riverways of Mesopotamia, utilizing expertly designed pontoon bridges as they went. Just as had happened with Khwarezmia a generation earlier, tens of thousands of desperate refugees flocked towards Baghdad, filling the city to breaking point. The Khalifal army, vastly outnumbered, made a brave stand, but were scattered by Hulagu's men, who used the very landscape of Iraq against them, diverting the waters of the Tigris to flood their camp, and causing irreparable damage to the ancient dams of the region, vital for food production in the process. Upon reaching the city, still virtually unopposed, it was surrounded by a deep ditch. Lacking timber to make siege towers, Hulagu's men set about hacking down the carefully cultivated forests of date palms that had fed the region for thousands of years, in order for them to be turned into lethal missiles to be launched into Baghdad. Gunpowder, a terrifying new technology from China, was used to undermine the walls instantaneously bursting into apocalyptic flame upon contact with the city 
and its unfortunate defenders. Next, engineers and sappers were brought in to dig directly under the walls. All this took place with barely any losses for Hulagu, who simply watched the carnage, waiting patiently for the walls to collapse. Rather than surrender, the Khalifal army made one final attempt to flee in order to fight another day. They were massacred by Hulagu's outriders. Within a matter of weeks, the walls came down and the massacre began. Showing no mercy to an enemy who had defied him, Hulagu ordered the city set aflame. Its Muslim inhabitants, anywhere between 200,000 and a million people, were killed en masse. In the ensuing carnage, perhaps one of the most brutal sackings in human history, not only were the tombs of the Abbasid Caliphs desecrated, but the House of Wisdom, the greatest seat of learning the world had ever yet seen, and a vital link between ancient Athens and the European Renaissance was burned to the ground, millions of irrecoverable pages lost. It was said that the rivers of the Tigris ran black with the ink spilled from destroyed manuscripts. Their irrecoverable pages eventually recycled into shoes. As for the Caliph, According to Armenian scholar Grigor of Akanch, he was locked up for three days without food or water, before being brought out to examine the heaped gold and silver of his treasury. Hulagu allegedly ordered the Caliph to eat his treasures, scoffing in disgust when he could not do so. Al-Mustasim's alleged final fate was recorded in several later sources as a last solitary gesture of respect for the Caliph. Though perhaps he didn't quite see it the same way, he, along with all of his male heirs, were wrapped up in carpets and trampled to death under the hooves of the Khan's horses. For in Mongol society, the noblest death was one with no spilling of blood. handful of family members did escape the carnage at Baghdad, heading to Cairo where they were set up as religious figureheads by the Mamluk dynasty that held sway there, themselves descended from Turkic slave soldiers. Though the secular power of the Abbasids was now gone forever, Al-Mustasim's descendants would continue to rule in name alone for another 260 years. The fall of Baghdad ushered in one of the lowest ebbs ever faced by Islam, and for most historians, the end of its golden age, sometimes said to have lasted for an astonishing 500 years, during which time the Abbasids held sway over Baghdad as perennial masters. To get to the heart of this story, we have to go back to the very beginning, to the figures who founded Abbasid greatness and to the city at the heart of it all, so entwined with the fate of the dynasty who first built it. We must go back 500 years to the mid-8th century. 
For those of you who want to learn more about the Mongols and what happened after the fall of Baghdad, then once you finish this video, head on over to History March, where there is a fantastic new video on the Muslim response at the Battle of Ain Jalut. It's an epic battle where the Mamluks of Egypt, no doubt spurred on by their new Abbasid guests, rode out into what must have seemed like a hopeless last stand against the Mongol war machine. The link to their video is in the description, so I highly recommend you add that to your watch list. And subscribe to their channel for all sorts of other amazing historical content. In the year 762, a caravan arrived at the very centre of modern-day Iraq, a meeting point on the fertile plains between the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers. Cities had existed here for thousands of years, as long as cities had existed. Their sand-scorched remains could still be seen dotting the landscape. And now those men, the foremost leaders of the Islamic Caliphate, a state stretching from the Atlantic to the Hindu Kush would found a new city at the very centre of it all, the greatest the world had ever seen. The leader of those men was known to his friends as Abu Jafar Abdallah ibn Muhammad, though more recently he had adopted the caliphal title Al-Mansur. He wasn't the first caliph, his older brother As-Sufar holding that title, Though, quite rightly, Al-Mansur is generally regarded as the founder of Abbasid greatness. And now, after 12 years of transitory existence, following his family's overthrow of the old Umayyad regime, those men would found a new imperial capital, situated at the very centre of the elaborate system of canals and waterways that crisscrossed central Mesopotamia. Like cities in Europe during the Industrial Revolution, craftsmen and merchants from all corners of the realm and all walks of life flocked to make their fortunes in the new boomtown. Which, because of its location and its caliphal patronage, grew immensely quickly. Mosques, palaces, factories, libraries, hospitals even, all grew up in an extremely short amount of time. Interestingly, unlike any administrators of the former Umayyad regime, one of the masterminds behind it all may not have been born a Muslim. For he was Khalid the Barmakid, an immensely skilled civil servant descended from a hereditary family of Buddhists originating in the Balkh region of modern-day Afghanistan. Today little more than ruins and rubble, Balkh was one of the great cities of late classical Asia. Encircled by a Cyclopean mud-brick wall, the city had once been the capital of Greek Bactria after Alexander the Great's conquests. Later, it was ruled by the Kushans, an immensely powerful empire contemporary with Imperial Rome. The nearby Bamyan Buddhas, destroyed by the Taliban in 2001, once stood as testament to this time of Buddhist rule in Afghanistan. And prior to the Abbasid revolution of the mid-8th century, the Barmakids had been the guardians of a shrine here for generations. 
Now, recent converts to Islam, like thousands of others living in the eastern portion of the Caliphate, they'd thrown their lot in with the Abbasids just before the revolution and moved to Baghdad afterwards to make their fortunes, profiting immensely in the process. Khalid's aid was integral in the construction of Baghdad. Though his Persian heritage occasionally showed through, such as, according to the historian Masudi, when he saved the ancient Sasanian capital of Tessiphon from being recycled to use in construction of the new city. Arguing that wouldn't it be better to leave it there as a monument to Abbasid greatness. Baghdad, soon called the City of Peace, with its immense circular walls and elaborate system of canals, quickly became a Middle Eastern Venice. It would serve as inspiration for a slew of caliphal capitals to follow, most notably with Fatimid Cairo in the 10th century. Yet, the state was not always at peace. Like Rome during the height of the empire, the caliphate was pretty much constantly at war. The Abbasids had come to power on the backs of their allied cousins, who now suffered as a result. In 762, just as Baghdad was being built, a direct descendant of Muhammad rose up in the holy city of Medina with the support of other Alids. His brother soon rose up in Basra, and together they attempted to overthrow the new regime. Known as Muhammad the Pure Soul, this charismatic yet doomed Alid prince attempted to emulate his ancestor by raising his sword along the very same dikes and moat where Muhammad had made his stand just over a century earlier. Of course, he died in the battle, along with scores of other rebels from all walks of life. Brutal as he was, Al-Mansur was a great builder and skilled ruler, largely due to his tendency to promote by merit. His vizier, Raba, essentially the public face of the caliph, ruled the court on his behalf, whereas powerful dynasts like the Barmakids oversaw the actual administration of rule. The last 12 years of Al-Mansur's reign, between 763 and 775, were some of the most peaceful that the Muslims had experienced in generations. And when Al-Mansur died on the Hajj to Mecca in 775, despite no clear rules for succession having been established, his officials successfully stage-managed the potentially dangerous succession. In 775, seeing his son Al-Mahdi smoothly succeed him as the new caliph. Al-Mansur had played the role of the enforcer, his son, Al-Mahdi, portrayed himself as a spiritual figurehead. He seems to have taken more of a backseat than his father, and the state flourished. There were more Alid rebellions, such as that of Hussein ibn Ali, but these were made light work of by the Caliphal army. In 780, after returning from an expedition against the Byzantines with the young crown prince Harun, Khalid the Barmakid died. His son Yahya, however, had already cemented his position within the regime, 
and his influence over the young potential heir to the throne, Harun. In 785, having already named two heirs, Al-Mahdi died, apparently in a hunting accident. Thus, for the first time, a succession crisis threatened to explode into civil war. Yahya found himself imprisoned by the new caliph. His fate, and potentially that of the other brother, Harun, looked grim. Though thankfully for the empire, which had still not established an effective method of succession, the caliph died soon afterwards, in mysterious circumstances, thus paving the way for the reign of the man often seen as the greatest of all Abbasid caliphs. In the midsummer of 802, an especially curious incident occurred at the Frankish Emperor Charlemagne's imperial court at Aachen. According to the Frankish scholar Einhard, as courtiers and regional magnates went about their business that day, they were stopped in their tracks as a solitary Asian elephant came thundering into view over the horizon. His name was Abul Abbas, and for many of those present, he must have seemed like a mythical beast from the far reaches of the earth. Along with his traveling companion, a Frankish Jew named Isaac, Abul Abbas had traveled across desert, mountain and ocean to arrive at Charlemagne's court. He was himself perhaps the most notable diplomatic nicety amongst a vast variety of goods brought for Charlemagne from the Abbasid Caliphate for both empires had a mutual enemy in the form of the breakaway Umayyad Emirate at Cordoba. Atop the back of the great beast came an exotic array of gifts and luxuries. Exotic silks from faraway China, expertly crafted metalwork made by Muslim artisans, perfumes from deepest Arabia, minerals from the four corners of the earth, Ivory chessmen made with material from deepest Africa, a colossal tent with multicolored curtains, and perhaps most notably an ingeniously made water clock that marked the passing of time by automatically dropping bronze balls into a bowl. Each passing hour was greeted by a mechanical knight that emerged from a tiny door, which then shut behind him. The marvel was so impressive and so far ahead of anything that Western Europe could make at the time, that, according to Einhard, many of those present simply took it for sorcery, beseeching the emperor to have it destroyed so it could not corrupt his mind. Such was the technology of the Abbasid Caliphate in the early 9th century, under the rule of the caliph Harun al-Rashid, quite simply the most powerful ruler on earth. At the same time, another Frankish court writer, Notka the Stammerer, describes envoys regularly travelling back and forth between the two imperial courts, with Charlemagne sending his ally Spanish horses, colourful Frisian cloaks and impressive hunting dogs. Impressive these may have been, though in truth the items sent with Abul Abbas far outweigh those sent by the Franks. 
he himself spent many years at Charlemagne's menagerie before dying somewhere in northern Germany, with the very slight possibility that he was utilised very briefly as a war elephant in a campaign against the Danes. In the decades and centuries that followed, such was the importance of the diplomatic gifts sent by the Abbasids to Charlemagne that in the view of many scholars, they had a lasting influence on Carolingian art. Yet, Western Europe isn't the only place we find gifts being sent by Harun. At the same time as Abul Abbas entered Europe, another Abbasid alliance was brokered. This one with Tang China, on the opposite side of Eurasia. Like the Umayyad threat on his far western periphery, Harun was of course looking out for his own concerns, specifically the mountain kingdoms of Tibet, which threatened his far eastern lands. Known as Arlun in the Tang sources, perhaps Harun sent a similar diplomatic mission to China in order to get them on side against this common foe. These missions to the Atlantic and the Pacific Oceans a testament to the continent-spanning trade network and diplomatic ties cultivated by his empire. Usually held up as the greatest of all Abbasid caliphs, in the 1200 years since his reign, Harun al-Rashid has certainly captivated the hearts and minds of Muslims and non-Muslims alike the world over. In the 19th century, he was called the Golden Prime, and the splendour of his court made famous in Europe by the likes of William Butler Yeats and Alfred Tennyson. The reason for his popularity, however, were the tales recorded in the Persian epic, The Arabian Nights. The story of the mythical Persian Sassanid King of Kings, Shariar, who is told stories by his wife, Shahrazad, in order to delay him from killing her, eventually changing his view on life in the process because of the stories she told and ultimately saving her life. These tales, including the basis for Aladdin and Sinbad, some of them perhaps originating in India, aren't strictly historical, actually dating from the later Middle Ages. Yet, many of them are based on stories that date back hundreds of years to the time of the early Abbasids. It was during that era that some of the greatest Arabic poets of all time were writing. Men such as Abu Nawas and Abul Atayua to name a few. And poetry itself was admired like never before, perhaps only rivalled by ancient Greece. Thus, the Arabian Nights provide a fascinating glimpse into the Caliphate at the very height of its power, as imagined by future generations. In many of the stories, Harun, often portrayed as a symbol of firm but fair justice, wanders the streets incognito at night to see how the common people lived and what their views on life were, accompanied only by his vizier Jafar the Barmakid and his executioner, Masrur. For most Muslims, this was the greatest age for Islam.
Yet, precisely because of the Arabian Nights tales, the historical Harun al-Rashid fairly quickly turned into a legendary figure after his death. To some extent, this reputation was the product of the disasters which followed his reign, leading to it being looked back on as a golden age. Golden as it was, Harun's reign was an age of contrasts, incredibly violent by modern standards. The very same Jafar he wandered the streets with eventually being executed on a whim. Though it was certainly a high point for culture and scientific achievement, Harun's reign also saw the beginning of the political disintegration of the Islamic Caliphate, which had been mostly unified since Muhammad's death in 632. Yet it was also a time when scientific curiosity was applauded. The ancient writings of Greek scholars being translated into Arabic and thus saved from oblivion. It was a time of great literacy, perhaps the most literate society the world had ever seen. Due to the importation of paper technology from China, a revolution akin to the printing press. It was also a time of incredible engineering achievements, exemplified by the impressive road system through Iraq to Mecca, conceived by Zubaydah, one of Harun's wives. And thus, when dynasties and states did eventually break away, they were still hugely influenced by the culture of those early Abbasid caliphs. Harun al-Rashid had been born in the city of Ray sometime in the mid-760s. He was the son of al-Mahdi, the third Abbasid caliph. And al-Khajuran, a former slave girl from Yemen, turned influential dynast. She was a queen in all but name who would greatly influence events during the reigns of her husband and son. Harun began his career out on the borderlands of Anatolia dispatched there by his father to learn the art of war with his mentor, Yahya the Barmakid. His older brother, Al-Hadi, had been due to become the next caliph, and Harun perhaps faced a life in the military. In 785, however, when Al-Mahdi died on a hunting trip, a purge began, perhaps instigated by Al-Hadi's manipulating viziers, and Yahya was imprisoned. In September 786, however, Al-Hadi died in somewhat mysterious circumstances, making the way clear for Harun to succeed him. Yahya was immediately released and Harun able to take control of the state. Under the tutelage of his mentor, Harun began his reign by appointing very able ministers, promoted not by familial connection but by ability essentially an army of civil servants who would run the empire for him, and according to most historians, greatly improved the quality of life of the people. Due to the overwhelming military superiority of the army, regular tributes were paid by numerous foreign rulers directly to the caliph, and these funds were used on architecture, the arts, and a luxurious life at court. Baghdad continued to flourish, becoming the most splendid city of its period. Yet Harun wasn't content with living in the city founded by his grandfather. He had greater ambitions, 
In a tradition that would again be emulated by his successors, Harun began work on a new imperial capital, essentially a forward military command base near the Byzantine frontier. Construction on Raqqa had first began in 771, but under Harun it became a priority. He would spend the majority of the rest of his reign there, taking his military duties extremely seriously. Before becoming caliph, the young prince Harun had, along with his Barmakid teachers, already led campaigns against the caliphate's traditional enemy, the Eastern Roman Empire, in 780 and again in 782. The latter expedition had been a huge undertaking, even reaching the Asian suburbs of Constantinople before turning back. Yet, other enemies existed too. Syria was still a hotbed for Umayyad sympathizers, which may have been one of the reasons for relocating his court to nearby Raqqa. Egypt saw its fair share of uprisings too, as did Yemen and Arabia, mostly against corrupt regional officials. The ever-present threat of Karajites, religious fanatics, flared up every so often. And of course, revolts in Persia happened too. In 794, Harun essentially handed over state affairs to his mentor Yahya, who in many ways became the public face to the secretive, closed-off caliph. Even before this time, as shown in detail by the 10th century historian Al-Masudi, the glittering and cultivated Persian dynasty had dominated at court. From around 797, however, military supporters of Al-Harun began to worry about the immense influence enjoyed by the Barmakids. Whereas official Abbasid policy had always been to destroy their enemies at the slight hint of rebellion, the Barmakids sought to come to terms with bitter foes, such as the Alids, to seek peaceful terms rather than pursuing the never-ending blood feud. By 803, according to al-Masudi, having arrived unannounced to talk with the Caliph for the last time, Yahya had overreached himself. Despite being some of Harun's best friends from childhood, the Barmakids had to go. In 803, apparently out of the blue, Harun ordered the immediate deaths of his former mentor Yahya and his son Jafar, one of his closest childhood friends and partner in the Arabian Nights stories. The fall of the Barmakids, a fable that would be repeated for centuries to come, neatly outlines the immense and total power held by caliphs at this time. In the years that followed, some said they were destroyed by caliphal whim, others by the weight of their own hubris. The last years of Harun's reign were spent largely at war, or preparing for war at his new base of Raqqa. Throughout his entire reign, most summers had seen annual expeditions against the Byzantines in one form or another. Though most weren't aimed at actual territorial expansion, and tactical successes were modest, the largest Abbasid military expeditions ever raised against the Byzantines were fought during Harun's reign. The largest of which, in 806, he is said to have brought together 135,000 men, 
many of them volunteers eager to go to holy war. Nevertheless, these expeditions into Anatolia were largely ceremonial, often called prestige campaigns by later scholars. Like the regular yearly pilgrimage to Mecca known as the Hajj, they were undertaken in order to maintain the status quo of Islamic supremacy and to keep any rebels and the Byzantines in check. In truth, the caliphs had enough on their hands governing the territories they already had without having to seize new ones. Unrest still regularly flared up in Yemen, Arabia, Dalem in the mountainous southern shores of the Caspian Sea and various other areas of Iran and the East. In far away northwestern Africa, the Idrisid dynasty in Morocco had began to self-govern in 788 in return for annual payments. And in 800, the Aglabids in Tunisia did the same. Nevertheless, on the whole, and especially for the era, for most people in the Caliphate, this was generally a peaceful time. Harun wasn't just a military or secular ruler, he was the religious head of the faith too. As such, one of his main ceremonial duties was to lead the Hajj. A duty he took seriously, undertaking it close to 10 times in his lifetime. Whilst out in the desert, he reportedly relaxed and drank ice with his drinks, shipped down meticulously from the Zagros Mountains and kept cool in underground ice houses before being ingeniously shipped into the desert under straw in boxes. Thus, Harun enjoyed the height of luxury whilst crossing the desolate sands of Arabia. To his people, he wasn't just a sovereign, but a miracle worker who could essentially defy the laws of nature. When Harun returned from his campaign against the Byzantines in 806, he was greeted by bad news. A Khorasani Arab noble, grandson of the last Umayyad governor of Khorasan, had launched a large-scale rebellion against Abbasid rule. Harun, the only member of his dynasty ever to visit Khorasan, again went to war, arriving in the Far East in 808. Just as the rebellion was finally quelled, he died there in 809. Upon his death, according to the historian Al-Tabari, Harun left 900 million dirhams in the treasury. The state was incredibly rich. Yet, nevertheless, Harun was the last caliph to go on the Hajj, and he was the last caliph to hold power over all of the Abbasid lands. After his death, it took just two years for civil war to break out. In the year 803, Harun al-Rashid called a great assembly to take place at the holy city of Mecca. As he did whenever he could, he just finished leading the Hajj, and as a result, princes and lords from all corners of the realm accompanied the caliph that day, along with the potential successors to his reign. Like most high-ranking Muslims at the time, Harun had many wives and concubines, and the more astute in the crowd may have felt a sense of unease at the sheer amount of potential candidates for rule. 
The rules of succession were by no means concrete during this time, and just like most other places during the early Middle Ages, the death of a ruler nearly always proved to be volatile. Of course, when choosing a successor, blood and lineage took precedence over ability, and it was announced at the assembly that Al-Amin, Harun's son from his marriage to the noblewoman Zubaydah, would be made primary caliph after his death. Zubaydah was descended from the Caliph al-Mansur, thus making her a cousin of the Caliph and an especially prestigious bride. However, Harun also had another son in mind, a man who lacked the pure Arabic blood of his half-brother, though made up for it with his wisdom and intelligence, quickly becoming one of his father's favourites. In addition to his personality, the young prince could also call on the Persian dynastic links of his mother, well and truly winning his father's favour in the process. In an unprecedented new arrangement, on that day, Al-Amin was made primary caliph in the west, centering on Baghdad, and Al-Mamun, the more capable of the two, would help his brother by ruling the east, based out of Persia. Thus, when Harun died six years later, the new arrangement began. Al-Amin, with his Arab mother, Arab advisors and support from Orthodox Sunni Muslims, began ruling in the West. Al-Mamun, with Persian mother, Persian power base and Persian advisors, and support from Shia Muslims, ruled the East. As these two young rival caliphs began their reigns, each aided by a multitude of ambitious courtiers and officials, it was only a matter of time before the first shots were fired. After the downfall of the Barmakids in 803, the way had been opened up for a multitude of dynasties and individuals, some of them eunuchs, to hold the reins of power. According to a number of near-contemporary sources, one of the main catalysts for the war was the desire of Al-Amin's vizier, Ali B. Issa, to gain access to the tax revenues of Khorasan. And by 811, a colossal caliphal army marched east to put an end to Al-Mamun's reign and reunify the caliphate once more. Perhaps 40,000 warriors marched east that year led in battle by the vizier Ali B. Issa. Yet Al-Mamun had powerful friends too, most notably Al-Fadl B. Al-Rabi, perhaps an unlikely figure. Al-Rabi hadn't always been a Muslim, presumably being born a Zoroastrian. He'd only converted towards the end of Harun's reign, having been patronised by the Barmakids just after their fall and rising swiftly as a result, being attached as a teacher to the young Al-Mamun, eventually becoming an integral advisor. Yet Al-Rabi and Al-Mamun both had the wisdom to know that they weren't the right men to push the Khalifal army back. For that, they picked the best man for the job, along with the most elite soldiers they could find. Nevertheless, when General Tahir al-Hussein marched out from the city of Ray in 811, accompanied by no more than 5,000 soldiers, for al-Mamun, the situation seemed bleak. 
On that day, however, out on the Persian plains near Ray, Al Hussein, heavily outnumbered as he was, won a crushing victory. Ali B. Issa was killed, his 40,000 strong army scattered to the wind, and Al Amin's reputation landed a devastating blow. In the aftermath of the battle, Al Mamun's position in the east was secure. But he wasn't finished yet. Ordering together all the men he could muster, a large number of them Persians, probably along with various contingents of Turkic slave soldiers, captured in battle in Central Asia and press ganged into service. And together they began the march to Baghdad. The great city was about to face the first siege in its long history. By 8.13, Al-Mamun's forces surrounded the capital, inadvertently laying waste to much of the surrounding countryside. Rival local militias serving each of the two caliphs further added to the chaos, with many simply taking advantage of the carnage to enrich themselves at the expense of their neighbors. Yet Al-Amin refused to surrender, even as giant catapults indiscriminately launched fiery death into the city. And inside the walls, not for the last time, poets and writers lamented the sorry situation with protest poetry. At the heart of it all, holed up in his great-grandfather's citadel, crippled by indecision, sat the Caliph Al-Amin. Dominated by an overbearing mother and controlling advisors, any reputation he'd once enjoyed was now largely destroyed. It was a sorry situation indeed. All that remained now was to give himself up, but who to surrender to? If he chose the right person, he might live. Eventually, the Caliph agreed to surrender to an old family friend. But en route, he was betrayed by Al-Rabi and eventually killed by a group of Persian soldiers. In truth, the execution had been botched, perhaps Al-Mamun's desire for vengeance getting the better of him. As tales of Al-Amin's alleged stoicism and bravery in the face of death spread far and wide, he very quickly became a martyr, acquiring far more popularity in death than he ever had in life. It would be six years before the fighting fully ground to a halt. During that time, Baghdad remained a hotbed of resistance to the new regime. Finally, by 819, after the final flight into hiding of the anti-Caliph Ibrahim B. al-Mahdi, al-Mamun finally made his triumphal entrance into Baghdad. After close to a decade of carnage, the war was finally over and the recovery could begin. And what a recovery it was. It didn't take long for Baghdad to begin to grow again, as former inhabitants returned and new residents moved in. Trade flourished, construction and engineering boomed, and science and culture reached new heights never before seen. Of course, those in power who had served Harun al-Rashid and subsequently Al-Amin could not be trusted. They were mostly wiped out or at least removed from positions of power. 
Yet, Al-Mamun did not command a large loyal army. He had no equivalent to the tens of thousands of Khorasani warriors who had swept the early Abbasids into power, nor the zealous volunteer jihadis who had served his father. He had to negotiate for military support, primarily turning to the most powerful Persian dynasty of the day, the Tarahids. It was an especially profitable arrangement for both sides, and would last for another 50 years to come. Thus, with the regime change, came an influx and reinvigoration of Persian influence in the Caliphate. Yet, Persians hadn't been the only new group to enter Baghdad in that year. Along with Al-Mamun came Turks, fierce nomads originating on the Central Asian steppe. In the years that followed, many unreliable military posts, notably in Egypt, began to be replaced with Turks personally loyal to the Khalifal family and no one else. It worked extremely well to begin with, but just like with the Germanic peoples in the later Roman Empire, well, let's just say we'll certainly be hearing more of the Turks. By the time of Al-Mamun's death in 833, the damage dealt by the civil war had not only dissipated, but the Caliphate entered an unprecedented era of learning and scientific achievement. The population of the city grew close to 500,000 people. In an age when London and Paris barely had 10,000 inhabitants to speak of, it was very possibly the largest city in the world and had a trade network to match. Items coming in included carpets from Persia, linens from Egypt, pearls from the Gulf, glassware from the Levant, metalwork from Syria, perfume from Arabia, spices and gems from India, furs, honey and slaves from north of the Black Sea, ivory gold and slaves from Africa, and porcelain from China. Al-Mamun enjoying vast monetary reserves from his monopoly over the silk and spice roads, lavished patronage on scholars. For he, more so than any other caliph, was a genuine intellectual. Like a Muslim Marcus Aurelius, having far-reaching interests in science and philosophy. Though the Beit al-Hikmah, the House of Knowledge, had been established by Harun al-Rashid, and may have even been begun to a certain extent under Al-Mansur, under Al-Mamun it would become the greatest seat of learning the world had ever seen. Thousands of scholars amassed in Baghdad during this time, travelling from the ancient cities of Greek and Roman wisdom in Egypt, Syria and even further afield in Sicily and Crete, as well as from the old Sasanian Empire in Persia. Persian culture had always held a desire for knowledge as a paramount concern, and as Islam continued to merge with old Sasanian traditions, this intellectual curiosity filtered in. Not only did Al-Mamun call for scholars, but he called for their texts too having anyone rewarded handsomely for any ancient books they translated into Arabic. Friendly rivalries began to grow up between competing scholars over who could find and translate the rarest books. 
with ancient Greek texts being especially favoured. Books were shipped in from the other side of the world, and expeditions sent out to retrieve others. In addition to thousands of old Persian texts, the likes of Hippocrates, Galen, Archimedes, Euclid, Plato and Aristotle were all saved from oblivion by Al-Mamun's genius. It wasn't just Muslim scholars who were favoured either. Men of any nationality or religion besides pagans could rise up, be they Jews, Christians or even Zoroastrians. Great exploratory expeditions were launched too, by Arab geographers seeking to map out the known world. In addition to the literary, scientific and engineering achievements of the Caliphate, mathematics effectively began during this era too. The very concept of zero and the numbers we know today being imported from India and improved upon, until eventually they entered Europe via Muslim Spain replacing Roman numerals, thus eventually allowing for computing. In 833, whilst on campaign against the Byzantines, Al-Mamun died. The Caliphate had reached the greatest heights it ever saw. Baghdad was the greatest city in the world. Yet the cracks were beginning to show. Upon his death, Al-Mamun's original choice for successor, his son Al-Abbas, a war hero, was overruled. Instead, a younger son of Harun al-Rashid was able to muscle his way into power, utilising an elite retinue of Turkic slave soldiers to do so. They would prop him up for the rest of his reign, though over the century to come, they and others like them would cause havoc for the empire at times reducing caliphs to prisoners in their own palaces. But it wasn't just the Turks that the caliphs had to contend with. To the north, Byzantine border garrisons waited for the perfect moment to strike. To the east, Persian dynasts bided their time. To the west, North African Berbers had already gained their independence and yet more would follow. And even sub-Saharan African slaves in the riverlands of southern Iraq would have their part to play. The next hundred years, the slow decline and fall of the Abbasid Caliphate is one of the most captivating eras in all of human history. What goes up must come down. Don't forget to subscribe to the channel and hit that bell notification button to be notified when a new video comes out. I'd just like to take this opportunity to recommend a podcast, The History of Vikings. It's a great show, I love it. He interviews leading experts and academics in the field. What's not to love? Also, whilst we're here, you can get a great discount on a new bag at Gaston Luger. Head on over to their website and use the offer code HISTORYTIME to get money off your order. And there's also a bunch of History Time t-shirts available on our new Teespring store. Go and check them out.
There's links to everything in the description below. You've been watching History Time. I'll see you on the next one.